Welcome back to a Clubfoot Mom podcast. I am your host and fellow Clubfoot Mom, Maureen Hoff. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Frick, Chief of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford, Professor and Vice Chair of Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. A previous guest, Danica Baskar, initially introduced me to Dr. Frick, who she worked with at the Stanford Division of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery during her research fellowship. If you were able to listen to that episode, you will hear Danica talk about the studies they worked on that focused on congenital clubfoot. Dr. Frick is passionate about clubfoot treatment and research, and I'm very grateful for, to have him on the podcast today. We are going to focus our conversation around what parents can expect during clubfoot treatment and how to handle any bracing challenges. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Frick. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you. Yeah. So why don't we start with you telling us about how you began treating clubfoot and how long you've been doing it? Okay. Well, my treatment started, uh, you know, when I was an orthopedic resident. Um, and I was a resident in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, but I had a little bit of a different path because I had been a parent of a child with clubfoot before I was a treater of children with clubfoot. Wow. So when I was a fourth year medical student, um, our first child was born, our son Eric, with bilateral club feet. And so I went through all the treatment with him during my fourth year medical school and uh, which included um, below the knee non-ponsetti casting for uh, about four months. So changes mm-hmm. cast maybe once a week or every two weeks for four months. Mm-hmm. So in cast for the first four months of life. And then his feet really weren't that much different. And so quote, a failure of non-operative treatment. And then he ended up having surgery a little after age four months um, which, you know, knowing what I know now, that was sort of at a time where there were some French papers and, and European clubfoot experts who were advocating for sort of very early clubfoot surgery. Mm. So kind of like the earlier you realign things, the quicker they have a chance to start growing more normally. And so mm. we had surgery pretty early. So by the time I got to residency, um, I didn't have much knowledge of clubfoot, but have a lot of experience with clubfoot, right. having been a parent. And then, uh, so then uh, I worked with a couple of, thus I had an interest in clubfoot, started mm-hmm. reading more about clubfoot, um, mm-hmm. ended up as a resident going to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery meeting. And every year they would have what's called an instructional course lecture on clubfoot. Mm. I would go to that, learn about what was happening by national leaders in clubfoot care and clubfoot treatment. And uh, so I did that for six years because I, I did a research fellowship in addition to my five years of orthopedic residency in Charlotte. Um, and I was working with pediatric um, orthopedic surgeons in our residency program and really at the Greenville Shriners Hospital in Greenville, South Carolina. We did a rotation down there. So I learned a lot about clubfoot from those people, uh, and uh, then went to um, San Diego for my pediatric orthopedic fellowship, and it just shows you. So that was, I graduated from residency in 1997, Mm. and I had done all of that, so pretty much really tried hard for six years. I decided I wanted to do pediatric orthopedics. I knew the clubfoot was going to be a major interest of mine, Mm -hmm. and in that entire time, I didn't meet one person who used the Ponsetti method. Wow. And I actually don't ever really remember in my residency or in my fellowship seeing a child who had a true clubfoot, an isolated structural congenital clubfoot, mm-hmm. who got treated with casting and and it result and it and it corrected the deformity. Every wow. single one of them went to surgery. Wow. Of some form. And so, you know, my journey then was I went to San Diego actually, quite frankly, to 
really try to learn to be the best club foot surgeon I could be because I thought mm -hmm. I was interested in that and right. I was going to be a surgeon and I, I did lots of club foot surgery at the Greenville Shriners Hospital and I did a lot of surgery in San Diego on club foot you know mm. one of those things where you know you often in fellowship programs <clears throat> there there are many cases sort of to choose from and we have some leeway as to picking what cases we go to assist with and and I would pick the clubfoot cases all the time so I could mm -hmm. do as many as possible. So anyway, mm -hmm. I started my practice in 1998 and had never seen the Ponsetti method. Wow. So when did you first get exposed to the Ponsetti method? Like, how did you become a believer? Well, and I think it is, it's interesting. I mean, and I think that there is some, uh, thought even especially early with the Ponsetti method that believing and being a believer that it was more like a religious thing than a scientific thing. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, but I became convinced that the evidence showed the base, you know, the best available evidence that we have, you know, clinical outcomes, papers and research papers, and then the experience of practitioners, um, that there was something to it right away, sort of early in my practice, um, because I became aware of uh, John Hertzenberg's um, experience where he had very similar to me. Uh, John was probably 15 years or in that range ahead of me. Mm -hmm. um, and he had been taught to operate on club feet. Right. And then he switched over to the Ponsetti method and, and in his own, with his own hands and his own experience, um, mm -hmm. discovered that what had been coming out of Iowa for a long time and had been published was actually true, mm. that the patients did do great and that the Ponsetti method was highly effective. And what I found most interesting was that not only was it, did it work and was it effective, but, you know, he, John felt strongly that it was better that his mm -hmm. Ponsetti treated feet were better than his surgically treated feet. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then we subsequently have, have seen a lot of scientific studies come out and, mm -hmm. sort of, you know, agree with that sentiment, but that was his initial sentiment. And so um, I wish I had a copy of the letter, but someone shared with me a letter that John Hertzenberg had written to his residency mentor, um, a very well-known surgeon from Duke University, Dr. Leonard Goldner, who also was very interested in Clubfoot and had written and published on Clubfoot. And it was a very interesting letter because John basically told Dr. Goldner, like, you know, you taught me how to do this, but that was all wrong. Mm. And, and the Ponsetti method um, is really the best method. And so I happened to have had by that time during my residency, my interest in clubfoot, I had had many, many, many conversations with Dr. Goldner about clubfoot. Wow. And we had exchanged letters. We would write letters back and forth to each other. And I'm, I'm a resident. He's like basically the past chair of the department and the giant in orthopedics, particularly in the Southeastern United States. And, but he took an interest in me because I was very interested in clubfoot. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, so that was really interested in that because because I had this relationship with Dr. Goldner already. Mm -hmm. And I came to learn that, you know, Dr. Goldner, Dr. Ponsetti had, had really sort of been on the podium at multiple different meetings decades and decades in the past and had very different views about clubfoot and actually right. didn't belong very well, mm. um, which was interesting and not in a bad way, yeah. but, but this, they had professional disagreements about, you know, Dr. Goldner thought he was right. And Dr. Ponsetti thought he was right. And, mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I got started. And so I cold called John Hertzenberg. And to this day, I'm grateful for his wow. graciousness and his mm -hmm. willingness to share his knowledge. And uh, he's really, truly one of the great educators in our profession. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of good advice from John and, and that helped me get started. Wow. Yeah. Dr. Hertzenberg, I've had the um, honor of being able to talk to him about his experience with Mm -hmm. kind of taking over and starting the Ponsetti method and in his. So did you 
did it change overnight for you or was there kind of a gradual? No, no, I had to learn. I had to. Yeah. Yeah. I, How long I, do you think it I took read, you? I read Dr. Ponsetti's articles. He first mm-hmm. told me that. Then I got the, the green book, which had just been published, you know, in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. um, Congenital Clubfoot by Ignacio Ponsetti. And then um, I practiced it. And then I would, then I started calling people that knew, that used the Ponsetti method um, and track them down at meetings and ask them how they were doing it because there were certain things that, you know, for example, I didn't understand the importance of what position you put the foot in in the first cast and the role of supination. And so I talked to Ken Noonan about that at a POSNA meeting. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden I went back understanding that concept and my, my patients were getting, I was doing a lot better with my casting. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a little paper about that actually even yeah. later because I, I thought that I called it the magic move, sort of where you put the foot with the first hmm. cast and unlocking the foot. And then uh, Dr. Ponsetti, I believe the group in Iowa had their first course in like 2000. And so I went to that course in Iowa City and met him. And that started a dialogue between he and I that lasted, you know, basically until the end of his life hmm. um, about Clubfoot and, and, uh, and through that course too, I got to know Fred Dietz better and I, Dr. Weinstein, Stu and I started talking about Clubfoot and just a lot of different people then helped me. Vince Mosca was at that course. And so that, that struck up what's become a lifelong you know, friendship since then with Vince and talking about both Clubfoot and, and really all pediatric foot and ankle problems. Um, so anyway, that's how it started, but it, it, was, it was definitely like, oh, you just kind of read about it and you figure out how to do it and next mm-hmm. tomorrow you can do it perfect it's it's like any other skill you have to study it and practice mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. and apply the principles and then you know figure out what works in your hands and try to make it better each time well well thanks for sharing that that's quite the journey on. let's talk about your first contact with parents of clubfoot kids so they come, when do you, when is your first point of contact? It depends on the parents. I say, I would okay. say it's much different now in that, uh, and I don't know the exact numbers, but I, my guess would be 60 or 70% of the time now I meet them before the baby's born Okay. because they've had an ultrasound and someone's mm-hmm. told them that your child based on the ultrasound and the, usually the 20 week anatomical scan, they'll say we think has a congenital club foot. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I think that's been for me, like the perfect telehealth visit. Mm-hmm. I often do those, you know, when both parents can be present and mm-hmm. you don't have to have travel. And so I can do it either at the end of a clinic day or sometimes even early evenings or early mornings. And um, so most of the time now I meet them, while the mom is still pregnant and mm-hmm. we talk about the diagnosis and what it is and how we treat it. Um, otherwise I meet them, you know, soon after the baby's born, mm-hmm. um, that would be, you know, the other, I would say, you know, if I said 60% I'm meeting, but you know, after they've had an ultrasound that I'm probably meeting another 25%, um, you know, right after the baby's born and it's a newborn, Mm-hmm. And probably 15% of my practice is parents that I meet after someone else has taken care of their kid with clubfoot and mm-hmm. they either have relapse deformity or never did get completely corrected, or there's some issue that they want my opinion about. Okay. How do you manage parent expectations of what the clubfoot treatment is going to be like from that first appointment? Well, I have a pretty standard probably 20 to 30 minute long talk. Okay. You know, and mm-hmm. I talk about, I mean, the important questions are, you know, is that the only thing they saw on the ultrasound mm-hmm. and, you know, do, is, does the spine look okay? And the, mm-hmm. you know, are there any other signs that there might be a syndrome? Um, you know, are the bones otherwise normal? You don't have a missing tibia or a missing fibula or mm-hmm. some other, you know, thing that doesn't make it a congenital clubfoot. Uh, but that's unusual. And usually it's just a congenital club foot. And then I say, you know, that there are, it, it is a major birth defect. We, you know, I think that there, 
um, the Ponsetti method, as fantastic as it is, as it is at correcting congenital clubfoot deformity, um, it doesn't make the foot a normal foot. Mm -hmm. That's kind of been out there in the internet space for a while. And I wish we could make it a normal foot. That would be nice, but that's really not. Um, and I try to tell them that clubfoot affects, you know, everything below the knee for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And potentially there's some literature and science that shows that even the, the thigh and the femur bone on the side of a club foot is not developed normally um, and has some side to side differences. So, you know, I think that um, I try to point that out to them that, uh, that often the calf muscles are smaller and the foot is smaller um, than it otherwise would be if it's bilateral or then the opposite side, which is normal if it's a unilateral club foot. Um, and so I go through all of those things. And, uh, but then I tell them that, you know, it's something that's actually in the scheme of things and some of the problems that we take care of in pediatric orthopedics, it, it's a, it's a good problem to have because I, I have a solution that, you know, corrects the deformity and allows children to be children and to have a very functional childhood and wear normal shoes and participate in normal childhood play and activities. And, um, and then I think there's good literature that says that as adults, they're going to do well and have good feet um, after the Ponsetti method treatment. Um, I still think that for me, and this is getting a little more into the weeds and the details, but I'm not totally sure that I can tell parents that their kid during the teenage years and young adulthood, when the human body is at its sort of peak physical mm -hmm. capabilities, sort of time frame, I'm not sure that kids with clubfoot are just as good as kids without a clubfoot during mm. that phase of life. And my, mm -hmm. my belief is that they're not. Mm that their muscles are smaller and their foot doesn't have the same range of motion. And because of those things that, that it might be that they can't perform at the highest level of physical function all the time as mm -hmm. it, you know, or with the same probability or same chances that they could be a star athlete, for instance, as a kid who doesn't have club feet. Mm -hmm. But that being said, like everyone who's in the club foot space, parents and knows of, world-class athletes who have club right. foot. Right. And I have my own patients who, you know, I just had one the other day, an 18 year old whose family sent me a really nice note saying, you know, you may not even remember us, but you took care mm -hmm. of our baby and his club feet, you know, 18 years ago. And now he's the fastest kid on the team and just got a college baseball scholarship. So wow. that clearly happens. Yeah. You know, right. but is that the norm? And I, mm -hmm. I think it's dangerous to, for parents to expect that that's mm -hmm. going to be the way it is. Cause I have, in my own practice and have seen other uh, people's patients with clubfoot who that's not their experience as teenagers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we'll see about that one. That's an ongoing research question. Yeah, me. that's interesting. And I think you talked about the misconception. I think there is a misconception. One of the biggest ones that I see is this idea and that I even took on as a parent was like, this is fixable. This is fixable. Like meaning in my mind that she, once she's done with treatment, she won't have, she'll have a normal foot. And through this podcast and speaking with so many different surgeons, I've started to realize that that while it can be corrected, she will always have club feet. They will always be different than a quote unquote normal foot. Is that one of the biggest misconceptions you hear, or is there something else that you hear from parents? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that is a commonly um, held misconception sometimes from parents. And I, I, so part of what I try to do in the very beginning is kind of set some of those expectations. And what I tell them is that, you know, a lay person, or maybe you might not even be able to tell the difference between hmm. well-corrected congenital club foot and a normal foot. Mm -hmm. I can always tell. Yeah. You know, if you show me a patient Mm -hmm. really regardless of their age there are a few things that i can look for mm. that club feet have and that normal feet don't have mm. and so i think that that's um that's the case and it you know and they're in medicine you just never say never never say always so 
you know, there are, I'm sure, some milder clubfoot, like someone might be able to say, examine my feet. No, Dr. Frick, you, you can't tell which one's a clubfoot. That probably is true for a very small percentage of people. But the vast majority of the time, mm-hmm. I can tell you within about, you know, 15 seconds or less, mm-hmm. I look at and feel and move a foot, whether it's a clubfoot or not. And mm-hmm. that's what I tell parents often the time is that sometimes there's some confusion, particularly if it, if it is a milder or more flexible clubfoot amongst the pediatricians or family practice doctors, like, is this a clubfoot or not? And right. it takes me literally a few seconds to make that decision. Wow. I can look at the creases in the back of the foot and yeah. I can check the range of motion of abduction of the foot and dorsiflexion. And mm-hmm. in the five to 10 seconds for me to do that, I can tell you if it's clubfoot or not. Wow. Yeah. I think that's an important message for parents to hear and not, I, I try not to make it scary. Like it's, we all want to believe that like the defect is going to be fixable and you hear it's like, it's a good problem to have. Right. So that I don't like to take away from that, but I also think it's important for parents to understand that this, that once you're done with bracing, or if you deal with relapse or residual deformity, that it still doesn't mean that the foot has magically become not a club foot. Exactly. And I think that's well put. And I think, you know, it also gets to the idea that in pediatric orthopedics, we often take care of children or see children in our offices because the parents are concerned that something isn't right. Mm -hmm. And then we have a conversation with them between like, well, you may want that to be ideal in your Mm -hmm. mind. That means this, Mm -hmm. but what your child has is actually normal. And so Mm -hmm. like a common thing for that would be pediatric flexible flat foot. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people spend a lot of energy and time worried about congenital or pediatric flexible flat foot. Mm -hmm. They think because their child doesn't have a nice high arch that that's, we have to do something about it. That's not because in their mind, it's ideal that you have a nice arch in your foot. Mm. Well, a whole lot of people in the world, probably 20, 30, 40, you know, depending on the populations, like a very high percentage of people have flat feet. Wow. And in our mind, you know, orthopedic surgeons, like flat feet that don't hurt are not a problem. Yeah. And the very, you know, almost all children with flat feet, they don't hurt. So we're mm-hmm. not worried about them. And right. Yet there's this misconception that it's not ideal. So then the next step is, well, then you have to do something about it. And Mm -hmm. those are both sort of, that's sort of false thinking. And you do not have to do anything about flexible flat feet that don't hurt. Mm -hmm. For for clubfoot, I think it's kind of the opposite. Like, oh, well, the Ponsetti method is so great. We can can take this thing that is a real problem Mm -hmm. that if not treated leads to lots of disability and and potentially pain and decreased function. Mm -hmm. So we have this pretty simple, pretty you know, very low risk intervention mm-hmm. that can really make the foot look normal mm-hmm. and act, you know, function normally in mm-hmm. childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not normal. It's not right. all the way there. And for those parents who have kids that, you know, 50% or so are one-sided club foot and 50% have it on both feet, mm-hmm. like just look at the other foot. And I show yeah. them all the time. I'm like, I often put the feet together and say, look, mm-hmm. it's a little bit bigger. I mainly do ankle dorsiflexion. And so for me, mm-hmm. if there were one thing that I could make better in sort of the outcomes of how we currently treat congenital club feet, it would be to try to get more ankle dorsiflexion range of motion. Mm-hmm. If I could do that in a way that was safe and that did also that also did not result in less strength Mm. or, you know, kind of walking on your toes and your ankle functioning when it's going the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think limited ankle dorsiflexion is just compared to normal, all club feet have that. Mm -hmm. They all have that, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's as close to a universal, you know, again, yeah, right. There are some kids that just do fantastic and they, they just have crazy, great ankle dorsiflexion. But mm-hmm. if it's on one side and you look on the other side, it's almost never as, you know, yeah. never as much as the other side. Hmm. Why? Why would you want to? What about the ankle dorsiflexion long term, do you think? Well, I think the biggest thing is that most studies correlate 
patient function, mm. what they're able to do, what activities they can do, how, how, how they perceive their foot to be functioning correlates pretty well with their range of ankle dorsiflexion mm. and their range of ankle motion. And, uh, and then there, I mean, some simple things like the ability to squat, you know, the, the ability to do some certain activities. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so I think that's the main thing, but I, I think an unanswered question um, in terms of, I think most experienced practitioners as have in their own mind, as I do, like what, what's enough, what's enough, mm-hmm. but we haven't really studied it and said, mm-hmm. well, how much ankle dorsiflexion do you really need? Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of us, we, you know, we would say you need to be able to get your foot into a, what we call plantar grade or flat position where if, if a child or a young adult is standing with their foot flat on the ground, their leg can be vertical over their planted foot. Mm-hmm. So it's basically mm-hmm. the bottom of your foot can get to a right angle to your leg. And when you can go, when your foot can bend up or dorsiflex more than that, we call that dorsiflexion above neutral. That's always a positive. But if you look at the Pontetti, like his uh, patients, the classic study by Cooper and Dietz in 1995, like I, I believe I'm remembering correctly, but the average angle dorsiflexion was like six degrees, mm-hmm. which is not very much. Mm-mm. And um, And some patients who actually had good results had a negative number. They couldn't quite get mm. to that right angle, but they still were functioning well and had so i think that one thing that i find some doctors do is that there there can be sort of an overly aggressive attempts to get more ankle dorsiflexion with aggressive surgery that may do more harm than good because mm-hmm. to do that mm-hmm. you often have to lengthen or relengthen the achilles tendon and open the ligaments in the back of the ankle mm-hmm. and those things may, while they may produce more range of motion, they might also make your leg and ankle weaker. Yeah, right. Those are what kind of what the studies show. So anyway, I, th- hmm. I think that's a. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an ongoing question for me that I'm still trying to design research studies to look at and try to see if we can add some knowledge about that so that we could, if there are strategies that could lead to. Mm-hmm either of those things, both better ankle dorsiflexion range of motion and also better ankle plantar flexion strength. They kind of go back and forth with each other. Yeah. yeah. How to achieve better dorsiflexion while still maintaining the strength. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I know because for our child, I think they're always, the PT is always trying to say if she's above 20 degrees is what they want her to be at. So, it, but that number. Would be great. And I think it's wonderful. I think part of it's how you measure that. And part of that is if right. you look at as, you know, and different studies say different things, but as you get out of infancy and kids start growing and developing, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, that there was a recent article published on normal ankle range of motion and children yeah in a Scandinavian elementary school, I think, and published in JBJS. And there's a whole bunch of those kids that don't have 20 degrees of dorsiflexion. Right. You were five, six, seven, eight years old. So, you know. Well, I remember asking our doctor that exact question because our baby was, I mean, our cutie was less than one. And I had a four-year-old daughter at home and I was like, listen, I'm doing these stretches with, with my baby. My four-year-old her foot doesn't flex like that. Her ankle dorsiflexion doesn't get up. And they're like, well, does she have like a normal foot? And I'm like, as far as I know. Um, So I remember just thinking that like, what actually is a normal range? And I would say now my four-year-old with club foot, her range of motion for dorsiflexion is definitely more than I would have ever seen from my middle daughter. So it's just interesting to see. There's definitely some individual variation, right? Right. Um, People. And then, but then Mm -hmm. there's also just, you know, if like how much is enough and what do you need? And so I I really believe that. And I tell parents that um, as a clinician and surgeon, like I don't tend to to really get um, 
in the we need to treat this mode until I see that you can't dorsiflex to that neutral position. So if you have mm -hmm. residual Aquinas and then, then I'm generally going to try to do something about it. But if you can get to zero degrees of dorsiflexion or above that five, 10, 15, 20, you know, I, I'm going to be happy. Yeah. Almost all the time. Yeah. So what are some risks for relapse during treatment and how is the relapse or residual deformity? Cause uh, Dr. Noonan did a great job of explaining that yeah. to me. So now I kind of use the words interchangeably because for parents, I think they still think relapse. Um, yeah, exactly. So I think it's hard to know. I mean, one is that like, do you think you ever got the deformity all the way corrected? Right. right. That, that's part of the, is there just residual deformity? And mm -hmm. that can be a hard one, even for those of us with lots of experience. And, and Dr. Noonan is one with lots and lots of experience. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, in the end though, both relapse and residual deformity can kind of be thought of as like the, having the same effect. And it's, for me, it's when they're having an effect that is going to change the way the child's foot hits the ground and thus functions that I'm going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, there, there's just lots of information about, um, compliance with bracing being the thing that is most important to mm -hmm. not have the uh, foot relapse or have residual deformity develop or, or, or sort of uncover itself. So I think wearing the braces, uh, but I'm also a fan of the, you know, sort of the combination of sort of French non-operative thinking, which was led by Elaine de Meglio Mm -hmm. his group to that exercises are also helpful and sort of put mm -hmm. racing and exercises together. And so I don't think it's complicated. And I, I tend to once where my patients are out of the full-time bracing, so get the foot corrected and casting the cast, the last cast goes on for three weeks. Um, I tend to tell parents then, you know, um, a little mantra, okay, three weeks, three months, three years, so in my practice, that's what I sort of get them to commit to with me. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to go on this journey where three weeks in the last cast, three months in a brace, 23 out of 24 hours a day, at least three years of nighttime bracing and maybe more, mm -hmm. but we're going to go three, three and three to start with. And then when we get to the third birthday, we'll, we all have a big meeting about, do we want to have a celebration and the foot looks great and it's got good flexibility and shape and muscle balance. And yeah, mm -hmm. we're going to stop the bracing or. Hey, I'm a little worried about this. Maybe there's a little bit of deformity. Maybe there's a little bit of muscle imbalance. Mm -hmm. Like we, we, we need to do something more about it and keep bracing. And so I think number one is bracing compliance. And number two is I teach them these little out and up stretching exercises and tell them to do it every day, yeah. you know, at mm -hmm. least, at least a couple of times a day and whether or not other things like, you know, Dorsey ramps and, mm -hmm. you know, heel walking and toe walk, I'm, you know, those kind of exercises um, I'll do in the older kids. But uh, for the little ones, I just tell them, you know, out and up, just, you know, yeah. take the foot out and then stretch it up. What do you, what do you tell your parents to look for, for relapse? Like when do you have them contact you and say, Hey, I think something's up. Yeah. I tend to have them come see me every six months for, um, until the child's five years old. So I'm kind okay. of looking for it myself and, mm -hmm. you know, how quickly and when to like intervene in a relapse, I think is also probably dependent on the doctor and parents and lots, a lot of other factors. But for me, um, I think the things that are simplest are, you know, when your child's standing on their foot, does the foot hit the ground such that basically the whole plantar or bottom <laughs> surface of the foot is touching the ground? Mm -hmm. Are they up on their toes and the heels not touching the ground? So that's an mm -hmm. Aquinas relapse is the big toe side of the foot sort of rotated up so that they're putting all their weight on the outside of the foot. Mm -hmm. That's a supination relapse. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I just tell them like, if it doesn't look normal to you and being in California, I'll tell them sometimes like if they don't make a normal footprint in the sand, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't see the mm -hmm. heel or you don't see the big toe, mm -hmm. that, that can be a sign that the foot's not hitting the ground in the right way. But mm -hmm. I think that um, I'm also looking at that and I know you know, parents have enough to do. I think my job is kind of to look at the foot and tell them if I think it's corrected or relapsing and I'll try to follow them frequently enough to make that yeah. decision. But the other thing that I think early 
is is more of a sign is like they're just not comfortable with their brace so mm -hmm. any kid who's can't tolerate bracing mm -hmm. my first question is 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 to me and did i get this foot corrected like is this mm -hmm. foot in the best possible position did we rotate it out enough in our last cast do we have enough dorsiflexion because mm -hmm. um, if you don't have those things then the brace is left less comfortable because it's pushing more on the foot than right. just holding it yeah I think those are good for parents to think about. I know that's what we always, I mean, I, my husband teases me all the time because I feel like I just watch her feet like a hawk. I feel like us club foot parents are just. Oh, for sure. I watch her. Like I never watched any of my other kids. Yeah. The poor. Well, I get it's a different world too now with social media and also with. Uh, yeah. You know, there's all, there's lots of Facebook groups, groups, which are, can be really good, but they also mm -hmm. can, I think sometimes pour some fuel on the anxiety fire that something's wrong based on a picture and a, but I, a lot of, you know, I, I tend to um, freely share my cell phone number and my um, email. And so parents very commonly yeah. say, hey, I got one this morning. Like, yeah. oh, my God, oh my gosh, does this foot look okay? And yeah. I say, yeah, it looks fine, you know? So yeah. I, I think we just need some reassurance every day. Yeah, I think then. it's just part of having a child with a club foot because, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, I, I'm okay with that. I'm, yeah. I'm all right if parents are worrying about relapse because I'm worried about relapse. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are on the same page, right? Yeah. So are there different outcomes for children who experience relapse to those who don't? Like in teenage years, adult years? The great question, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, so we did a study that was published earlier that looked at five to 10 year olds with clubfoot. Mm -hmm. And we, we tried to get sort of what I call real world data using an activity tracker that in addition to an activity log that the parents filled out and, you know, what, what activities is your child doing? And then, you know, what can they not do? And um, so we track children who uh, were five to 10, half of whom had had a relapse that was treated more than six months ago. And so now their foot was good, but they'd had a relapse. And then we compared them to five-year-old to 10-year-old kids with club foot who never had a relapse. Mm -hmm. And we didn't find a difference in those groups. Hmm. And so um, it wasn't a huge study, but it is enough. And I think fits with my um, practice sort of views is that if you have a relapse that is successfully treated and you have a good outcome from that relapse treatment, then I think that children under 10 aren't any different. I think mm -hmm. that they can play childhood sports. They can run, wear regular shoes, participate in PE, you know, jump on the trampoline with their kids, friends, and do, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I do worry, like I told you that yeah, between 10 and 18, that there, that a difference may show up, not only between normal kids and kids with clubfoot that we talked about before, but also kids with clubfoot and kids with clubfoot who have had a relapse, mm. even if that relapse had been treated. Because maybe the fact that you relapse is a marker that you have a more severe mm. dose of whatever it is that causes clubfoot. Mm -hmm. And if you look closely, there's one of Dr. Ponsetti's articles, classic articles that was published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery at 18-year follow-up. And so that means these are kind of the teenagers. Mm -hmm. And in that study, he reported without a whole lot of detail that kids who had had a relapse had more pain and poorer functional scores than kids who had never had a relapse. Hmm. So and that kind of would make sense, right? I mean, is mm -hmm. that sort of plausible to think about it that way? But we don't know that yet. And I'm interested in potentially doing a larger study using kind of the same methodology we did for our five to 10 year olds mm -hmm. and assessing activity and function mm -hmm. and sort of how high, you know, how high can your function be? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, my personal anecdote as well is that as a parent is that I saw my own child, you know, not treated with the Ponsetti method and had had a bunch of surgeries, but he was able to do everything through mm -hmm. middle school. But when kids go through puberty and then all of a sudden all mm -hmm. the sports that he was interested in, kids are running faster, jumping higher, 
you know, the pace and speed of the game. And he happened to be a basketball player and he's a really good basketball player, mm-hmm. but he was a very good basketball player in a half court setting where he didn't have to run from one end all the way to the other end. Mm. And that, that part of it functionally for him was limiting. And mm-hmm. I, I think it, that may be the case for kids that are treated with the Ponsetti method as well, but we don't really have good data on that yet. And I'm, hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully they, they function great in there. Certainly some of them do just like the story I told you about, you know, a patient right. with a scholarship. And so, but to, to look at all the kids and to study a hundred or 200 of them would really, I think be, would add to our information and knowledge about how kids are doing when they're teenagers. Yeah. I think I'd it's, love to do that study. Yeah. I, I, you know, I would love it too. I think all the parents out there are looking for as much information. Cause a lot of the time that's what we hear is we don't really know. We don't, you know, because they just don't have enough research to say one way or the other. And so you hear about like the elite athletes who have club foot or had club foot as children, but there can also be that. I mean, I'm hesitant to think the same, you know, I mean, I want to have, I don't want to limit my personal thing is not limiting her and letting her choose what she wants to do, but also not having this other unrealistic expectation of what her mobility and abilities are going to be long-term for her. Right. Well, I can tell you, I see, you know, we see lots of kids in our practices with what we do who don't have any don't have club foot, don't have any congenital abnormalities, have the hopes and dreams to be a collegiate or a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, it's not what everybody's going to be sometimes, you know? Yeah, that's uh, right. So let's switch gears a little bit and why, um, and let's talk a little bit about the bracing. What mm-hmm. do you tell parents to expect during the bracing phase of treatment? How do you explain that to them? Um, I explain it to them that number one, um, the magic is in the bar, not the shoes. Mm. So, and my personal, my personal opinion is that, um, what type of brace you wear has not been shown to make any difference whatsoever. Mm -hmm. As long as the brace that you wear keeps your foot rotated outwards relative to your leg Mm -hmm. and what wearing the bar that connects both your shoes do is it allows some motion because as your feet go side to side there's even there's a little bit of motion that's going on inside your foot um, joints Um, but it really prevents and this is something that I'm not sure that I totally even understand. And I, and I know that a lot of people who are clubfoot doctors don't really think too much about, but in Dr. Ponsetti's book, and when I would talk to him, um, there was a guy who I believe last name is Houston, like H-U-S-O-N, who had done a PhD thesis on how the foot joints move and how those movements are related to rotation of the leg inward and out rotation of the leg so it gets very complicated but we call that kinematics and kinematic linkages and Mm -hmm. and so what happens is if you turn the foot out as far as it will go Mm -hmm. you're also sort of then to also turning the leg out as far as it will go Mm -hmm. and often in a final Ponsetti club foot cast, you know, the foot is going to be turned out like 60 to sometimes 90 degrees relative to the thigh. Like the foot's turned out a lot. Parents are sometimes like, oh my gosh, is that okay? That looks so abnormal. Mm-hmm. But we're doing that on purpose because we want to sort of put the foot in sort of the opposite position of a club foot and stretch mm-hmm. it out as much as we can. But when we do that, we also are rotating the tibia outward as far as it will go And when we do that, it locks the foot joints in a position where the heel bone and the foot can't turn in, can't invert. Mm. And to me, that's how I think about the brace really working is that outward rotation of the foot prevents the subtalar joint from being able to invert, Mm -hmm. which in 
parental language means the foot can't turn in and under sort of twist in again. Mm. Um, and it keeps it in that position and stretched out. And that I think as the foot is rapidly growing. So why do we brace, uh, you know, in the first few years of life and then just stop? Well, we're trying to brace the foot during a period of very rapid growth of the foot where essentially left unbraced, the foot wants to grow back into the club foot position, mm -hmm. you know, for the same reasons that it grew into the club foot position in the beginning, which are right. reasons that we don't totally understand. Right. Mm -hmm. But so I try to give them a little bit of theoretical explanation of how it works. And then mm -hmm. a lot of practical, you know, if, you know, it's very clearly shown that if, if you don't wear the brace that um, there's, you know, 70 plus chance of relapse um, and that a, in good brace wearers, the relapse rate is maybe 10 or 15%, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But so what I really think about the opposite of that. So I like to think about the opposite of that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What if I could cast your baby's foot and I knew you were in the 30% that even if you never wore the brace, you don't relapse. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be nice for me to tell you like, Hey, we're done. Yeah. You don't have to wear this brace at night for three years. Right. Like, how do we, how do we pick out that patient? And yeah. then how do I know, Oh, you're in the 10% to 50% that even if you mm -hmm. do the, you know, you're the most compliant brace wherever yep. this foot's going to, going to come back. Like, mm -hmm. how does that, why, what does that happen? And what can I, what should I be doing as your doctor to make that less likely to happen? So I think right. um, I don't get into that with just like the original brace wear parts, but those are things that intrigue me, make me think about the club foot problem a little bit more deeply. And I just tell parents like, this is what's really important that it's mm -hmm. not excused. The bar is what makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And it is usually in my parent parents, you know, there are a few that will disagree. It usually should be comfortable and it's not a big deal. It's not painful. It's not a, yeah. and and if it becomes a habit, then, you know, many yep. of my patients, you know, they, they get tired at night and they go get their bar and shoes and like bring them to their parents and say, I'm sleepy. Yep. You know? yep. So, um, so I think that's it. And I, I try to, I actually just try to make it more matter of fact and not like it's a big deal. And it, cause mm. it, you know, I just, you just, it's part of the deal and you're going to do it. And it's just becomes like, you know, if your kid puts on pajamas at night, then, you know, this yep. kid's going to put on a club foot brace at night. Yep. Consistency is such a big deal with brace wear, I think. What are some major issues that you see that parents face during the bracing phase of treatment? Like, what are you getting all the calls yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, skin issues are, can be problematic. Mm -hmm. um, I find them like once I switch to this current Brace and shoes that I use, I, they kind of went away. I think in the old days of the Dennis Brown bar and hard leather shoes that weren't very comfortable. Mm. I think now modern brace shoes and bars are, are much more comfortable. I have much fewer skin problems. Um, and I, you know, I've actually had in the last few years, my worst skin problems have been in kids with unilateral clubfoot on the normal heel. Mm -hmm. I've I heard that. Yeah. I think that some, there's some people have a very prominent posterior lateral mm. heel bone, and that's where I've seen sort of the worst skin problems. And, and, uh, so then, you know, it doesn't have to do with correcting the club foot. It's happening on the normal foot. Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to, so, hmm. um, so I think that's it. And then I, I just think, you know, some kids are fussier than others and don't want to wear the brace and, it, it's that can be a struggle but for me it's just the biggest thing when if I used to routinely put pa patients in the brace and have them come back in a month to see me mm -hmm. and then just got to be where like 99% of the time that was a wasted visit because everything was going fine and I just said okay we'll keep doing the same thing for two more months mm -hmm. and so now I don't I tell parents when i you know, we have the braces in the clinic because I don't like waiting and ordering them. And so cast comes off, braces go right on mm -hmm. that same day. I tell them 23 out of 24 hours a day. Um, and if the kid's really fussy, you got to take the foot out, look at it, make sure it's not red, pinch, skin problem. And if it looks okay, you got to go right back in it. Don't teach mm -hmm. them that crying gets them out of the brace. Mm -hmm. And 
And then I'll see you back in three months. And if it's really a struggle before then, I want you to call me. And I would say that, you know, it's really 95 plus percent of patients don't come back to see me for three months. No. Um, and then it's really unusual not to then switch to nighttime bracing. Um, I don't know that it makes a difference if you kind of wean yourself into less bracing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard Dr. Ponsetti used to tell people, okay, you were in at 23 hours. Now we'll do 22 for a week and 21 for a week and mm -hmm. 20 for a week. And I can't even, you know, I can't even keep track of like what, what week it is much less how many hours. I, so I just go sure. right away to, I want you to get at least 12 hours in the brace mm -hmm. or the child's a year of age. And then after a year of age, I want you to get at least eight hours a night in the brace. Mm -hmm. And those two numbers for me have seemed to work pretty well. Awesome. So what do you think is the best part about working with club foot families? Oh, seeing, seeing it get better and, and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I describe it sometimes it's like uh, every day the cast comes off. It's a little bit like Christmas. Mm -hmm. right? It's just like opening the present. What, what, and then I, I, you know, still very gratifying to me to have parents who are so worried and have a foot come in and the child's foot looks really deformed and bad and not normal. Mm -hmm. There just a few weeks later, we haven't, you know, it, it looks like a normal foot. Yeah. And so you know, very gratifying to, to get to experience parents having a tear of joy here or there when that happens. And, and then watching the kids grow up and being able to be kids and do kid things. And, yep. you know, and, and fortunately the vast majority of them are, do great and either don't have relapses or have mild relapses. Um, but at the same time, I think there's so much out there that like we've talked about that the Ponsetti method makes the foot normal or does just works mm -hmm. great. That's a, that there's just nothing that's foolproof. And so I often feel bad for the parents who they're in all that world. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they've got the one kid who's in that 10 or 15% that despite doing everything, the foot just wants to recur or develop complex features or mm -hmm. be difficult or have less ankle range of motion or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, there's still more for us to learn and more for us to do to, to hopefully take care of that small percentage of patients better. Yeah. But I try to support those families and just tell them, like, I know it's like, it can be a hard road. You know, yeah. my kid had so many surgeries, I, I almost lost count, you know? Yeah, I would imagine that would be one of the hardest parts about treating it is mm -hmm. the parents who have done it all on paper, right? Yeah. And still. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah. their kids, they still do well. And, you know, even kids, one of the things that's interesting looking at what's happening now around the world and, you know, we're so fortunate in our country, you know, at the resources and the yeah. opportunities that we have that, you know, but for instance, I have a friend, Dave Spiegel, that does a lot of clubfoot work, but also does a lot of global international work and has been very involved in the Pakistani clubfoot program and Nepal clubfoot program in particular. And in Nepal, they, they have these, this incredible paper of clubfoot patients followed like five to 10 years after casting. And many of the kids were, you know, didn't get their first cast, but until they were you know, one, two, three years old. Mm -hmm. And so the casting is a lot longer. And what they found is that they can get the foot in a much, much better position, but there's always some residual deformity in those mm -hmm. older kids, yet they still function pretty good. Yeah. Like, you know, but their level of function and what's expected and what's a good result compared to what they look like when they were walking on the tops of their feet at three right. years old. Right you know, it kind of resets what parental expectations are and a foot that hits the ground relatively flat, like mm -hmm. that's a home run, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. I think that, that part of it though shows you that, and I try to tell parents, like kids are really resilient and tough. And even though we might not be able to get the foot to the perfect position, we can get to a pretty good position. And with that, they're going to actually do pretty well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's good for parents to understand is to have that in the, in the back of their mind. That's at least what I always think is just to, I'm not just doing this for her right now. I'm doing it for her future adulthood. Right. 
and that expectation of what I want for her feet in adulthood is just pain-free functional feet. Exactly. So I, that's, that's, that's yeah. my biggest hope at the end of the day. Yeah. Exactly. And I, but I think that it's just hard for, it's, it's very challenging for parents. Um, none of us want our children to have limited opportunities, right? Yeah. And right. so if you do have something, anything, but if mm-hmm. you have something where your kid can't participate at a level that the other kids can, because for instance, they have clubfoot, then, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll give you an example. Like if you, if you have a, a clubfoot kid who say has had surgery, it's a very stiff foot. Um, like you can't go snorkeling, mm-hmm. right? If your foot is stuck at a right angle, you know, yeah. you put a, you put a flipper on that foot and that, that doesn't help you. It's more of a break. Right. Right. So just little things like that, that, you know, and particularly if they have in our world, you know, psychosocial implications for participation in school or Mm. what social group they get into, or, so then it spirals into, and I think in clubfoot parenting, a lot of that happens. Like there's a lot Mm. of that. And I think that, you know, I view part of my job as the clubfoot doctor is help them deal with that. Like it's mm-hmm. not just for me, it's not just about do you need a cast or a surgery and what position can I get your foot in, but how can I help you deal with all this other stuff that comes along with being born with something that's different? Yeah. Being born with a deformity, a birth yeah. defect, which is what it Absolutely. is. So. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I ask everybody this. So this is the um, kind of standout question is, is there like a special moment for you? throughout your clubfoot treatment journey that stands out to you as something like, it doesn't have to be anything in particular, but just something that you think of frequently. Um, I mean, there, there are lots of moments that, you know, I think that when my son was having had a son who had clubfoot and mm-hmm. he got to know about it, but um, he ended up in his high school senior year, they, they were required to do like a high school senior project. Mm. And he was interested in how the, so that was, let's see when that would have been 17, like 2007 ish, maybe 2006, 2007, probably 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he decided like at that time, the world was starting to change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you haven't seen it, because it, it got published in a pretty obscure journal, like World Orthopedics or something like that. But John Herzenberg has a paper that looks at, and it's just a map of the world, and it color codes all the countries mm-hmm. that adopted the, where the Ponsetti method was known to be sort of widely adopted. And it looks at it from like 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020. And it's pretty wild to see how the Ponsetti method spread around the world yeah, it was doing that here in the United States in 2006. And so my son decided he wanted to do his project on how clubfoot treatment went from primarily you need a big surgery to now you're going to need some casts and get this Ponsetti method. So he and I went together to one of the Ponsetti courses in Iowa City mm-hmm. and he got to interview Dr. Ponsetti. And so that that, wow. was a, that was a special moment for me to see him, you know, there and then. Yeah, writing these questions and getting Dr. Ponsetti to answer them. And it was, that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ponsetti, as expected, was, you know, very gracious. Yes. Well, that's, that's quite the memory. That's amazing. So thanks for sharing. Absolutely. If someone's listening in your area and looking for clubfoot treatment, where would they contact you and your team? Yeah, they, uh, you know, we have, uh, on our website, um, we actually have a, a special sort of clubfoot site on the clubfoot children's that, you know, if you, if they're on the Stanford children's, um, .org website, if they type in clubfoot and look for it, there's a clubfoot page and there's actually a, an, a special email for clubfoot questions that's on that. Um, huh. but our own practice, uh, we also just have a 800 number, 844-41-ORTHO, Mm-hmm. I think 844-416-7846, like that's an 800 number that goes to our scheduling team. And, mm. you know, we have a great orthopedic scheduling team that, um, 
you know, for, for babies with clubfoot, they know, you know, parents are often worried, like, am I going to be able to get in? And mm-hmm. like, they know, you know, there's certain things in our practice that we see within a day or two or within a week for sure and fractures and limping children. And so clubfoot's mm-hmm. on that list. And so hopefully if anyone's interested in having myself or I have a number of other partners who do great clubfoot work, if, if they need someone from Stanford to take a look at their child with clubfoot, it should be pretty easy to get to see us. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to be a guest today. It was such a privilege to talk to you. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it. Hope it yeah. Fun. Well, thanks so much for sharing all of your expertise. And I know that the parents listening will get a lot of information out of it. So thanks for sharing. No, you're very welcome. I want to thank Dr. Frick again for being a guest today on the podcast. It was very insightful to learn more about the ins and outs of clubfoot treatment and his perspective. As always, thanks for listening. And if you like this episode, please subscribe, share, and follow with anyone that you think would be interested in it. If you need to get in contact with me, please do so at my website, maureenhoff.com or my Instagram at Clubfoot Chronicles Mom.